YouTube will pay $2 billion annually for NFL Sunday ticket after DirecTV and Apple passed. We dig into the deal's economics, identifying the key variables that will drive YouTube's profitability. Listen on to hear more. Welcome to Inside the Stream. This is Will Richmond from Video News, and that was Colin Dixon from Endscreen Media at the top there. Happy 2023 to you, Colin. Happy New Year. And we are off to a new year and a new edition of Inside the Stream. We are. We are. And Happy New Year to all our, all our listeners. It's uh, been a great 2022 from a news standpoint. And it looks like it's probably shaping up to be a pretty interesting year in 2023 as well. Um, Of course, CES is taking place right now. So some of you are probably there or have been there before you were listening to this. Uh, So we'll we'll be talking a little bit about CES today, but that's not going to be our big story. But we're going to get started with a couple of news stories. And I think I'm going to go first, right? You are. So my news story actually comes sort of indirectly through CES. Uh, Roku isn't actually at CES, uh, but it did make an announcement coinciding with it, and that is that it is making its own TVs now. It's announced two lines, the Roku Select and Plus Series TVs, uh, and they come in sizes from 32 inches to 75 inches. Uh, And they're all pretty low priced. I don't have the pricing in front of me, but uh, they're all available. I think they're all available right now. The difference between the Plus series and the Pro series is really just in the remote as far as I can see and maybe in the screen sizes. Each comes with the voice remote and the Plus series actually uses the Pro version remote rather than the regular remote. So this is actually a pretty interesting move by Roku. Uh, they There was actually a rumor floated early in 2022 that they were making their own TVs. Um, I think I read that in Next TV, and I'm not quite sure where that rumor came from, but it looks like it was true. And I've got to tell you, Will, it makes, I think it makes sense for Roku to do this. It's not without risks. It makes sense primarily because very definitely there's a shift in consumers towards using smart TVs regularly. I was looking at Bruce Leishman's numbers uh, yesterday and he shows that mid sort of mid 2022, about 28% of TV homes were using a connected TV device to watch on a daily basis and 27% were using a, a connected smart TV. And that, definitely the trajectory seems to be taking it towards the smart TV. Penetration of the smart TVs is much deeper than than connected TV devices, by the way. So I think definitely this shift towards smart TVs is one thing that's driving them. But the other thing is that I think that they want a little bit more control. One of the problems of working with partners, and of course, Roku is the biggest licensor of a TV OS in the business at the moment. Uh, They're working with many, many TV partners. Uh, One of the problems with working with partners is innovation. You're really dependent on those TV partners to roll out a television with an update to the OS that you've made. And uh, they, that's a problem, right? Because TV manufacturers tend to not do that on a, a regular basis and certainly not very often. 
So this allows them to roll out updates to the TVs anytime they want. That means that they can try out new features really quickly uh, and innovate a lot better. This, this approach, by the way, has worked very, very well for TiVo with their interface. They've made lots of innovations over the years and used that in their, in, in their licensed products as well. So I think those are the two reasons. The risks, well, the risk of course is that you're now competing with the people that are your partners, the people that are actually licensing the Roku OS. So I'm not quite sure what this is gonna do to those partnerships, but I think it probably was something that they needed to do. uh, And they'll have to deal with whatever the fallout is with the partners because of it. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it was um, it was needed, and it's also a good move. The you know we've seen over the last couple of years various partners like TCL and others that have signed on to with other OSs to create models with them, and uh, I you know it feels like we're getting into a more confusing point for the market for smart TVs and the Roku brand is obviously very well known at this point, so. The idea that they would want to capitalize that, gain greater control, um, get the full economics, be able to uh, produce TVs, on, you know, the hardware side to optimize the software, the OS that they're creating, that makes perfect sense. And in a way, and I don't want to compare the two because I, I think there are plenty of differences. But you know, in the way back, Apple obviously decided to produce its own hardware and its own OSs, its own OS. That has helped it tremendously as the world has moved into mobile and portable devices. So I think Roku has, you know, they've kind of expanded into other CE type products as well, most recently. So no doubt they want to be able to leverage the Roku OS um, into those devices as well and kind of create their own ecosystem. So making their own TVs figures right into that. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point, and uh, that that's obviously something that they're trying to do. But the, you know, the biggest risk, will is, uh, you know, there really are plenty of competitors here for TV TVOS licensing. Um, one of their close partners was Hisense, but last year at CES, Hisense announced a bunch of TVs that were all driven by Google TV. They did the same again this year. They they really switched to Google TV. It looks like as their primary partner. And of course, I mentioned TiVo. We talked to Gears Garden on the podcast last year. They've launched a TVOS and they announced at uh, CES that Vestel will be delivering TVs using that OS in Europe uh, pretty early in this year. So not without competition in the OS market, uh, but uh, you know, obviously they're prepared to take that risk that some of the partners will focus elsewhere uh, in, to, in, to give them the control of, uh, of owning their own TVs and selling their own TVs. Yeah, and one other quick update on Roku that we both just saw uh, this morning, CES-related item too, is that they have uh, said they're now above 70 million uh, monthly active users. That was up, I think, about 5 million or so from it Q3 was. 22, right, which is... Yeah, um, slight acceleration versus the Q4 growth back in 2021. Yeah, yeah, I think they added about four million there. So yeah, that's good growth for them. Okay, so what did you see in the news that caught your eye, Will? Well, this may be, um, you know, sound a little bit trivial, but um, it it did 
come across my desk that HBO Max is removing or has removed half, about half of the Looney Tunes library from HBO Max. And for fans of Bugs and Daffy and everybody else, that will come as a bummer, no doubt. And it's not exactly clear why HBO Max pulled the Looney Tunes episodes, the recent ones, everything I think since 1950. Uh, they're leaving the older ones in place. Um, they chose not to renew their license, apparently, from a couple of the articles that I've read. The reason why I focus on it is because we've seen HBO Max pull other programming, Westworld, obviously the, the highest profile. And I think, and, and all this, of course, in the context of, as we all know, the huge debt load that Warner Brother Discovery is carrying, the 45, 50 billion that it's now down to, um, and that they've been cutting costs everywhere they can. And what I just wonder about is, are we seeing a pattern starting to develop where HBO Max is gonna be systematically pulling programming off the service in order to try to monetize it better through other ways, whether it's its own fast services or licensing it to Amazon or you know whoever else. Um, whether they're doing that kind of a deeper analysis on a program by program, title by title basis over at HBO Max and whittling out those where they think there's you know better opportunity for monetization. So uh, you know Looney Tunes in and of itself probably not that huge a deal, but potentially part of a broader pattern, which is what we want to keep an eye on. Yeah, and uh, as as our listeners will know, this was the number one story for us in 2022, and they're already delivering in 2023, which is uh, pretty interesting. As you say, I don't think this is a huge deal, but it does. I think it really does speak very clearly to the way that they're going to be running things. Actually, I had a thought as you were talking, Will, one of the things that I've been expecting some of the S4 providers to do is to start to curate their content a little better and leverage the curation to uh, surface content that gets buried, that people just don't find. And I think this is something that is an underused approach, uh, certainly amongst the top providers. And I think it could be very beneficial for them and, and allow them the opportunity while they're rotating some stuff in to rotate other stuff out and monetize it in other ways. Uh, but uh, I guess that it's not clear that that is what Discovery is doing and David Zaslav and his team are doing there. But certainly that's something that I would like to see a lot more services do. Yeah, and I think we'd agree that consumers are looking for more simplicity in their streaming experiences. So distributing or fragmenting programming to yet more different places seems like it's going to cause even more confusion. And so the opportunity is there for more comprehensive services. And that's certainly part of what I think WBD is looking to do by putting together Discovery Plus and HBO Max sometime this year. But but clearly certain programming is going to leak out of that service. and viewers who want to access it are going to be having to spend more time hunting around to find it. Yeah, yeah. Well, Paramount Global has not really backed away from its licensing practices, despite the fact that it has 
uh, to leading services, to lead, leading internet TV services. So, you know, if they could do it, maybe uh, WB Discovery can do the same thing. Yeah. Well, let's shift the conversation here, Colin. As our listeners know, um, when we recorded the last episode of 2022, we were just getting reports that it looked like YouTube was going to sign a deal with the NFL to obtain Sunday night, uh, Sunday ticket rights. And no sooner did we publish that podcast than the word was confirmed. And it was a significant event that we both felt deserved further attention as we got into this year. Sports on leaking over to streaming was one of our big themes last year. And um, we want to use the rest of the podcast today to try to kind of uh, work through our best guesses about how the economics of this uh, YouTube Sunday ticket deal work. And you built a nice little spreadsheet that captures a lot of different assumptions. I've made some modifications to it, and I think it has helped us both understand where maybe some of the key knobs are in terms uh, that need to be turned in terms of making this deal profitable for YouTube. So why don't you go ahead and get us started? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to tweak the knobs, Will. <laughs> so, uh, so, yes, the, the, the great thing about this was we got a little bit more detail. Um, I was able to pull some, some data about what DirecTV had been doing with Sunday Ticket. And basically it looked like, you know, DirecTV was charging about 300 bucks a season in 2022. Uh, and that they attracted something between 1.5 and 2 million subscribers. So I sort of took those numbers and made some assumptions to try and figure out how how YouTube would do. But there's one, actually, there's one very important difference between what YouTube will be doing and what DirecTV was doing. DirecTV was really using Sunday Ticket as a as an additional reason to subscribe to Sun uh, to DirecTV. You had to be a DirecTV subscriber to be able to subscribe to Sunday Ticket. Well, that is not the case with YouTube. For sure, you are going to be able to subscribe to it through YouTube TV if you are a customer of YouTube TV, but it is also being added to YouTube's prime time channels. Now, this was something that YouTube announced last year that you could subscribe directly to top SVOD services through directly through YouTube. Well, this Sunday ticket now is going to be available to that through that, and you will not need to have a subscription to YouTube TV to get it. So this is the first time it's been cut free, and it's kind of difficult to assess the impact of that, but We'll, we'll, I'm sure you and I will talk about that, Will, right? Yeah, and let me just, if I may, just jump in quickly to underscore uh, and agree with you how significant that is because the um, with DirecTV, as you said, DirecTV's approach, you had to subscribe to DirecTV, and because DirecTV, of course, is a satellite service, it required that you put a dish on your dwelling. And there are lots and lots of people out there who simply cannot put a dish on their dwelling because they may live in an apartment or some kind of uh, development where you know dishes may not be permitted. And also, as a result, if, in order to get Sunday Ticket, you had to be able to and want to be able to get DirecTV. 
um, this separates it, as you said. And to me, there's a bit of an analogy here to how HBO and Showtime and Stars used to be pre-streaming only accessible if you were a pay TV subscriber, cable, satellite, telco. They were a quote buy-through type of service. And all of those businesses have done really well in the streaming age where they basically untethered themselves from an underlying pay TV, having to have an underlying pay TV service. So that's now what's gonna happen to Sunday Ticket. Um, and that, I think, is a, a very meaningful change in terms of uh, what the opportunity is. Sorry to interrupt you there, Colin. Go ahead. Right. No, no, that's an important point. So, so anyway, um, I, I, I sort of put together a model that tried to reflect what I thought the, the revenue opportunity was for YouTube TV with, or YouTube rather, with, with Sunday Ticket. So I've assumed that they'll be selling Sunday Ticket to existing YouTube TV subscribers for about what they were selling, selling it, uh, what DirecTV was selling it for, which is about 300 bucks a season. Maybe they can get a bit more, I don't know, but that's what I assumed. And I assumed that non-subscribers will pay a bit more for, I said 450 in my model. Uh, the reason I thought that they would charge more um, is there are still advantages to uh, people who are YouTube TV subscribers um, that they get extra revenue through ad placements in in um, in the channels that they get normally so attracting new subscribers to YouTube TV is attractive even though they actually don't make very much money off each subscriber through subscription revenue there's a lot of advertising upside so basically I assume that they would charge a bit more if you weren't a YouTube YouTube subscriber net net of that is an average price of about 450 um, and if if they were able to attract every single one of the two million existing Sunday ticket subscribers, that would net them about seven hundred million a year in subscription revenue. Um, but as important, if not more important, is the advertising that goes on um, in in those games. And boy, if if there is anything that is a great advertising vehicle, it is football. I can't think of any other TV property where basically a third of the airtime can go to advertising and you retain your audience and that is indeed the case with NFL. So I assume that, that you know, a third of the time that people were watching would be absorbed by um, advertising. I assumed a relatively high ad rate. I found uh, some some evidence that uh, DirecTV was earning about 75, or at least NFL advertising, were advertisers were paying about $75 per CPM, um, which sounded high to me, but I've assumed that anyway. Um, so if you assume those rates, basically somebody watching a game is gonna earn $9 in advertising. So if they watch two games a week, uh, in a 17 game game season you get to 600 million dollars on the season which gives you 1.3 billion in total so that's obviously well short of the 2 billion that they're going to be paying the rumored 2 billion that they're paying in license costs per year for Sunday ticket so you know I played with some numbers and the way they can get there will according to my numbers and I know you've got you've you've got some tweaks to those if they can get 
if if either the two million subs are watching four games per week, that gets them pretty much to two billion. Or if they can add an additional one million uh, subscribers, you know, maybe people who didn't want to subscribe to Directv and then subscribe to to Sunday Ticket, if they can pull in a million more of those, that gets them to about two billion dollars a year so that that's the economics now to tell us about the little tweaks that you made to my model <laughs> yeah well excuse me uh, as i said and as it you know we would agree these are there are lots of different assumptions in the model and the model that you've created is you know i think provides a, an outstanding way of getting a you know sort of a basic handle on what the deals economics look like no doubt the folks over at YouTube created, you know, very intricate models. I'm sure they did. With lots of different assumptions to see how they could get there and they got comfort with it. The the ones that, <clears throat> excuse me, the knobs, quote unquote, that felt most potentially turnable given that YouTube is going to have the rights now instead of, instead of DirecTV are the total number of subscribers. And, um, you know, as you said before, they're rumored to have somewhere between a million and a half and two million right now. And as we talked about before, there it's operated under the constraints of having to have DirecTV, in other words, the buy-through, and also the issue with DirecTV being a satellite, requiring a satellite dish on your dwelling. So I, I, in my view, I, I think those, you know, let's just say it's two million people subscribing today, uh, I think there's a pretty good argument to be made that YouTube will be able to, assuming price stays the same, that YouTube will be able to carry over all those two million over to its service. You know, there are people who just, you know, they want to watch the games and wherever the games are available, they're going to subscribe and YouTube TV just makes it that much easier because they don't have to have, to have to have a dish any longer. So then the question is, what can they get incrementally above the two million by it being on YouTube versus on, on DirecTV? And as you said, there's certainly an uptick because it's no longer a buy-through. So being able to just subscribe to it via YouTube channels gets them some lift also. And that, that could be worth, you know, who knows what, half a million subs per year. Uh, and the other piece is that if you just look at the 2 million of the 13 and a half million or so DirecTV subscribers subscribe to Sunday Ticket, so it's like a 15% penetration rate. If YouTube TV could get that same 15% penetration rate on its 5 million, assuming that they're all incremental, then that could be another, who knows what, six, 700,000. So I don't think it's unreasonable to think that they could potentially get to 3 million subscribers for Sunday Ticket without that much difficulty. It feels relatively conservative. I also thought that the number of games viewed per week is really up for grabs. And, you know, it's, it's even a hard metric to use number of games viewed because uh, people will drop in and out of lots of games. So they may not watch a full game, but they may watch a third yeah. of this game, a quarter of that game, 75% of another game. It's, 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 a, it's a relatively crude you know, way of measuring viewership, but there's certainly some viewership minutes that then feeds into uh, what the ad inventory looks like in the CPM. I, I thought the CPM at 75 was a little high, but um, even if you plug in 50, which I did, and turn those other knobs as I did, 
the revenue is about 1.8 billion per year, which is in really kind of spitting distance of the 2 billion. And that's really only in year one also. That assumes um, no growth in, you know, over the course of the seven years of the deal. And all of that, I think, seems, you know, that kind of puts them in spitting dis distance of the 2 billion. You know, the prospect of having a couple hundred million dollar gap that still felt really worthwhile to me from YouTube's perspective because, first of all, keep in mind that Alphabet, YouTube's parent a company, had net income of $76 billion in 2021. So $200 million loss here and there is sort of, you know, it truly is a rounding error to the company. Uh, and, but I think the big win for them is they now get six or seven years to educate themselves about what NFL rights are really worth which gives them a much, much more informed uh, position to consider bidding on the full broadcast package when it, or a chunk of it when it comes up for renewal. Uh, that deal is set to expire in 2033 with the big broadcasters. And this gives them a window, a relatively low-cost window, to figure out how they might bid. And also gives them, because they have their own data on viewers, I think a much greater insight as to what the value of a viewer is than what the broadcasters have, which puts them in a more advantageous position to bid. So um, I, I think net-net, you know, there are a lot of different assumptions going on here, but I, I can see them in spitting distance of the $2 billion already, potentially exceeding it and being profitable and combined with the other intangibles here, I think it was a smart move by you two. I think that they, I think it was actually a much better deal for YouTube than it would have been for Apple. Uh, and this, the reason is simple, Will. I, I think the advertising here is absolutely key. One of the things that I think Google is clearly set uh, on, on doing is really getting a substantial chunk of the television advertising revenue pot which is 70 billion we know it's 70 billion around about that in the US that's a very very big number they're a very big company that are looking for very big markets and they're already doing extremely well with YouTube on television 8% of view time I think was in in November um, Nielsen credited to YouTube and YouTube TV uh, which is a pretty big number, and I think this will this gives them another substantial chunk. As I mentioned, there is nothing like a football game to that that, that drives revenue. Just nothing. So I think this is one of the key things. I think they think they can monetize the advertising in those games better than just about any other company. I. I hope we, we see lots of innovation and maybe they can bring TrueView here. Maybe they can bring a lot more targeting. I think there's just lots of opportunity for them to innovate in the ads and they're very confident, I think, that they can, they can um, make the economics work for them and end up doing extremely well out of it. And, uh, uh, you know, certainly our numbers, your numbers, my numbers show uh, that they can get there. There are. It may not happen in the first year, but they can get there. Um, we'll have to see how they pull and push the levers to to make it profitable. Yeah, I just want to add one thing, Colin, to what you were saying. Just saying about the value of the advertising and Google slash YouTube's ability to better monetize viewership. 
I think our listeners have probably heard me say um, periodically that I believe long-term the potential for connected TV advertising is in lower funnel, quote-unquote lower funnel ads. In other words, ads that have a more direct correlation to purchase or any type of conversion that yep. is yep. of significance to the advertiser. And um, arguably that's how Google built its search business is off of lower funnel ads that uh, were sold on a per click basis. Um, and a huge, huge array of smaller advertisers uh, began spending money with them because they could quantify exactly what a spend on Google was worth. If you think about CTV eventually becoming that kind of a lower funnel medium and Google bringing to bear uh, all of its expertise to YouTube and to the ads that it sells within Sunday Ticket Games, this could be a real catalyst, I think, for moving CTV advertising further down funnel. Doesn't mean that CTV can't also be used for branding and upper funnel, but I think that it can, um, it, 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 there's a lot of work that needs to be done in order for it to capture the big lower funnel opportunities. But yeah. to the extent that Google can do this now with YouTube and Sunday Ticket, I think it potentially unlocks a lot of new revenue and could be transformative for how sports is monetized through advertising, through lower funnel advertising. And again, potentially sets up Google and YouTube to be a much more formidable bidder for the broadcast package when it comes up in, in six or seven years. Right. Well, anyway, I think, I think we've probably exhausted our listeners on the first podcast of the year. So maybe, maybe it's time for us to, to wrap it up here. I think it probably is. And obviously we're, as you said before, waiting for pricing from YouTube to see what the Sunday ticket deal, how it's gonna be priced both for YouTube TV subscribers and also for those that are only gonna to subscribe to it through channels, how they differentiate. But a lot of good stuff here and part of our broader theme of how sports is moving into streaming. You bet. Okay, Colin, until next week, thanks for chatting. Happy New Year, happy New Year to our listeners and we'll see you all again next week. the stream is a production of in-screen media and video news all rights reserved